Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast, brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode, Claire Mully talks about the women who flew for Hitler, with moderator Jennifer Wellington, recorded at Printworks Dublin Castle on the 7th of October 2018. Hello everybody. Um, so today we're going to hear from Claire Mully, who has written a fascinating book, The Women Who Flew for Hitler. She is the award-winning author of three books, um, The Woman Who Saved Children, which won the Daily Mail Prize for Biography, The Spy Who Loved, about Britain's first um, female special agent, which is um, currently under option to Universal Studios, so watch this space. And today's book that we're going to be hearing about, The Women Who Flew for Hitler which is uh, a double biography of two different uh, female test pilots in Nazi Germany and their divergent experiences and careers. Okay, she also reviews and writes for The Telegraph, Spectator and History Today. She lives near Cambridge with her three daughters, a long-haired lurcher and her artist husband. So um, everyone please join and welcome um, Claire Mully here today. Hello there, everyone. Thank you very much for coming along to see me. Uh, it's wonderful to come here. So, as Jennifer said, I'm going to be talking about my third book, The Women Who Flew for Hitler. And thank you very much. That's great. And uh, it is a very dramatic story of these two individuals' lives. But of course, it's set in the context of the Third Reich and that regime that is responsible for the appalling crimes of the Holocaust. I'm not going to touch very much on that in my talk. There is more in the book. Um, but I will touch on it a little, so just to forewarn. Um, so I'd like you to imagine, if you can, something I never thought I'd try to imagine, but I've done more often than I care to think now, which is that you're in the cockpit of a Stuka dive bomber in 1941. And you're uh, sitting with a pilot, <clears throat> and you're going to do a test dive. And the way it works <clears throat> excuse me, is that the pilot will bring the plane up, and then before they come down, they slightly roll sideways, and then they bring the nose of the plane right down, so you're coming at about 80 degrees, nearly vertical, at speeds of up to 350 miles an hour, aiming directly for the ground. And remarkably, given this is inside Nazi Germany in 1941, your pilot is a woman. Here she is, Melissa Schiller, Melissa von Stauffenberg, after she married. And at the speeds at which you're travelling, it would be very hard to read the dials on the plane because the fuselage is shaking so much. They had little cameras put in in times. Um, and the, whole, the sound of the plane would have been incredibly noisy. And the pilots suffer further stress as well because of the G-force. And so at those speeds and at that incline, the blood would rush up into the pilot's head. And Melissa said that she often read it out. So the, her vision went red with the blood being forced up into her head. And the next step would be to black out. And on occasion, Melissa did black out during a dive. But she luckily, for her, always managed to regain consciousness, to be able to pull back on the control stick that you see there, lift the nose of the plane, and bring it back around across the fields to land safely. She was an absolutely brilliant pilot. So at the same time that Melissa was doing her test work with the dive bombers, another female pilot, here she is, Hannah Reich, was also involved in the test programme. She was testing a Dornier bomber. And uh, they, of course, were sent in to bomb enemy countries. And one of the big defences that we had was the barrage balloons. 
Now, these aren't floating freely, of course. They're tethered by thick steel cables. And the idea is that when the enemy bomber comes in at high speed, it's very hard to see these cables, and they had the potential to slice the wing off a plane, uh, especially at night. They're virtually invisible. And so they were pretty effective. One of the less pleasant things I did in my research was to read through Goebbels' diaries. And one day, he has an entry in his diaries. It says, we captured a British barrage balloon. He put an exclamation mark in. He was so delighted. And I kind of imagine he'd sent a crack team out to go and capture this balloon. But no, it had simply sort of loosed from its moorings and drifted across the channel. So uh, he'd just collected it at the other side, really. Anyhow, when they had this, they tried to work out ways to defeat it. And a German engineer came up with the idea of what he called wing blades, which were fitted on the front of the wings like sharp you know, knife edges. And the theory was that at the speeds the bombers were traveling, they would be able to slice through those thick, heavy steel cables. That was the theory. And the test pilot they chose to test it at risk of major injury, decapitation, quite likely death, is, uh, is Hannah. I think they thought perhaps at this point she was more disposable than the male pilots. Now, Hannah survived the test. And she wrote about it afterwards. She said when she first started looking at the balloon, she saw the sunlight glinting on the cable. It almost distracted her. Um, they tell you as a biographer to get inside your subject's mind. It was very hard to imagine being distracted at that point. But then she steeled herself and aimed her bomber right at the cable. And when it hit, there was a big shudder and her neck was thrown back, her head was thrown back. But it worked. It sliced through and she carried on. What they hadn't considered was that the end of the cable then whipped up and it smashed through her propeller, sending shards of the blades through the cockpit, narrowly missing her head. And part of that shrapnel ended up in one of her engines and the plane started coming down. Now, on the ground on the day of that test, watching was Ernst Udet, who some of you may know. He was a, a very famous fighter ace in the First World War and a Nazi general in the Second. And uh, he, with, along with everyone else, saw her plane coming down. It disappeared over the hedgerow and the trees on the horizon. And he waited for the plume of smoke and the, you know, the loud explosion. But it didn't happen because, like Melita, Hannah was a brilliant pilot. And she managed a perfect forced landing and walked away without any injuries at all. She, uh, not for the first time and certainly not for the last time, cheated death. So these are our two pilots. Uh, Melita on the left there, Hannah on the right. And as I said, they had a lot in common. They were both brilliant pilots. Otherwise, of course, the Nazis would never have let a woman into the test program if they didn't really need their skills. Um, and they, they were both great patriots. They, I think, had rather different understanding of what that meant. But they both had a strong sense of honor and duty. As young women, they'd learned to fly gliders, in fact, over the same green slopes. Um, and in the 1930s, they were part of this very glamorous set of female aviators. This is the time when uh, Amelia Earhart had her own fashion line and On Avion was the perfume of choice. I've been, I've been looking. If you ever come across a bottle of On Avion, I really want to know what it smells like. I know, steel and leather and sweat and fear, I don't know. Um, so these women were considered extraordinary anywhere, but no more so, of course, than inside Nazi Germany. And then when war came, both of them volunteered to serve their country. Now, because they were women, although their skills were needed, they weren't allowed to join the Luftwaffe because that was for men, and they felt women in uniform would just sully the whole lineup. That profile just wasn't right. Um, so they had to be civilians seconded in, and they were made flight captains, but because they were women, they had to be honorary flight captains. Uh, but they did become the only women to get the Iron Cross second class, and one of them was awarded, and both of them were proposed and selected for the Iron Cross first class. Um, and yet, 
they were very different characters. And of course, they ended their lives on opposite sides of history. So we'll start with Melitta, because she is nine years older than Hannah. She was born in 1903, and she remembered the First World War very well. Uh, her uncle was a friend of Ernst Dudetz, actually. He was also an ace in the First World War. And Melitta grew up with this strong sense of honor that there was, particularly more so in the First World War among aviators. Um, and then when the Treaty of Versailles came, she considered many of those terms deeply humiliating. Um, she, uh, particularly, they disbanded, of course it wasn't the Luftwaffe then, it was the German Imperial Air Force, and they destroyed the planes. They literally sawed the wings off and chopped up the fuselage. Uh, and she thought this was, you know, horrendous. And what rose, uh, like a phoenix from those ashes, I suppose, is, is gliding non-powered flight, because powered flight was banned for some years. And I think it became the sport for aspirational German youth who wanted to compete internationally and bring back some glory and pride to their nation. And Melissa used to skive away from her boarding school to watch the young men, and of course they were all young men, gliding on the slopes of Hirschberg. She was one of the only girls who actually got stuck in as well. She was very interested in engineering. And she used to go down and if there was a crash landing or a hard landing, she'd help fix them. And she suggested improvements to the gliders. And she'd help drag them back up the slopes so they could have another go. And in 1920, which is just before this larger photograph was taken, that's her university entrance card, to do engineering. Not many people doing that then. Uh, not many women. Um, she, she was rewarded with the chance to have a go in a glider. And what they thought was that she'd just sit in it and slide down the slope, and that'd be quite a laugh. Um, but she'd been watching very carefully. And she was pulled down the slopes in her glider by two rows of young men in sort of tightly knitted jerseys and plus fours, pulling rubber toe cords. And at the right moment, she pulled on the stick, lifted the nose, let go of the toe cords, which spiralled away, and off she went into the sky. She said, right from the start, Flying exerted an irresistible magic on me. I was dominated all along by the longing for freedom. Now, that was 1920. And that was the same year that someone else took their first flight. Uh, this man here, Hitler. And his was a very dramatic flight as well. He was actually in a motorised plane. Uh, it was an open biplane. He was flying from Munich to Berlin, hoping to take part in the Cat Putsch, which was, of course, designed to overthrow the Weimar Republic. And there was a journalist who wrote about Hitler's flight. He said, In his tight open seat, cramped between canister and oil and buffeted by the wind, only one thought occupied Hitler's mind. Will we make it to Berlin in time? I'm very pleased to say they did not make it to Berlin in time. They were um, caught up in rainstorms. He was absolutely soaked. He was just wearing his trench coat and his goggles and a little flying cap. Apparently, he was sick over the side as well. I've always been pleased by that. Um, and by the time they got there, the putsch had failed. Apparently, he... Well, I didn't put this in the book because I didn't have it verified, but I like to imagine it. So there, there is one account of him putting on a full beard and discreetly making his way from the airfield, pretending to be an accountant. So. Anyhow... So that was his first flight. But nonetheless, he was uh, thrilled by the potential of flight. So 1920, Hitler and Melissa are taking their first flights. And another little girl, seven years old, Hannah, was also turning her face to the sky. But Hannah had actually taken her first flight when she was just four years old, which is, as you can see in the first photograph there. And that was when she went to her parents' bedroom, climbed out on their balcony, stretched out her arms and leapt into space, thinking that she'd take off. She didn't. She was very lucky not to break her legs. Um, her parents did ground her, however, for the next 11 or so years. 
Um, but she was absolutely obsessed by flight. She used to watch the larks hovering in the fields and climb all the trees she could and so on. She said she opens her memoirs. What child is there that lives as I did, midway between reality and fairyland, who doesn't sometimes long to leave altogether the familiar world and set off in search of new and fabulous realms? And I feel, in a sense, she did achieve the fabulous. She was a magnificent glider pilot and pilot. Um, but I think she did leave reality behind. She did seem to sort of live in fairyland later on in life. She was 19 before her parents let her fly again. Uh, this is in 1931, 11 years after Melitta. And uh, she was, uh, again, the only woman on a week-long gliding course. All the others were guys. And on the first time they got the opportunity to sit in a glider, they were just meant to let it roll down the slope, not letting the wings touch to show they got their balance in the glider. And she couldn't resist it. So she pulled on the stick, up the nose went, and she went off into space. Now, the instructor was absolutely horrified. You know, women, they're so emotional, they can't do what they're told. And, you know, she could have destroyed this expensive bit of kit, um, even though she'd landed it perfectly well. So he banned her from taking any more flights. She was allowed to come and listen to the lectures, but she couldn't do any practical work. So every evening, she went back to her B&B, &B, and she sat in bed with her legs out, got a walking stick, and went through the manoeuvres as much as she could work out how to do it. And then on the seventh day of the course was the test. So they sent out the first man, and uh, he actually had a hard landing. He was failed. They were going to send up one of her friends next, uh, a, a man on that course who had given her the nickname Stratosphere after her first flight. She was good friends with him for the rest of their lives. His name was Werner von Braun, Werner von Braun, who became very famous in the... Uh, in NASA helping put men on the moon later after the war, the great rocket scientist. Anyhow, they decided it would be a laugh to put Hannah up next, um, thinking that she'd do appallingly, of course. And she showed them what was what. She went up, she did a beautiful flight and landed perfectly. So they failed her because they said she couldn't possibly have learned that from us. It must be luck. So she said, oh, well, give me another go. So she went up again, did it perfectly, and they had to pass her. That was 1931. That's how she got her license. The very next year, she set a world record for gliding. And some of her records, I've been told, have still not been beaten. So that was 1931. The very next year, Hitler gets back in the cockpit for the next time. And uh, as I said, he'd, he'd really picked up the idea, the importance of flight as a symbolic thing as well. You know, it's representative of power and freedom and modernity, all things he wanted to associate with his new party, the, the NSDAP or the Nazi party. So he would have a Zeppelin tied above Berlin, and every time they got another thousand members, they put changed the figures on that to let people know. They did leaflet drops over Germany by plane. And in 1932, he became the first political leader in history to, do, to campaign around his country in an aeroplane. And this is the cover of a book. It was called The German Flight. It was very famous. Um, that obviously represents him taking his country by storm. It was a very brilliant choreographed routine. He would go to up to five different rallies in a day. He would save the biggest one till last in the evenings. And then uh, he would wait till it was dark. Then he'd do his prepared speech when they lit flaming torches. And then they'd fly off. And he would keep all the lights, both inside and outside of his plane, turned off. <coughs> until they flew back around just low above the crowd and they'd suddenly put all the lights on. You just imagine it like a Teutonic god in the sky above the crowd. And the same journalist that recorded his earlier flight was there and he said uh, that the sound of the crowds roaring when the lights went on drowned out the sound of the engines. And this isn't like a you know, Ryanair flight. I was on Ryanair this morning. They're quite noisy. But um, this is one of those old planes, and you couldn't hear the sound of the engine. The journalist wrote, we experienced something new, almost cosmic up here. 
it's beyond words. So flight became very important to the regime, and as they, they gained power, uh, all pilots became valuable to them. But Melita and Hannah were particularly important because as women, they had celebrity or PR potential as well. Uh, and by 1936, they were both required to perform at different events in the Olympics. Melita flew amazing acrobatics in the Great Flight Day, which was the day before the opening of the Olympics, like our opening ceremony today. Um, and she absolutely wowed the crowd. Hannah took part in the gliding. Um, they had gliding trials. The Germans knew they were very good at gliding because they had all this experience now, and they wanted to make it an Olympic sport. Hitler thought the next Olympics would be the 1940 Tokyo Olympics. Of course, it didn't happen. After that, he thought all Olympics would be held in Berlin, but um, luckily it didn't work out like that. Um, anyhow, so she was uh, doing the gliding demonstrations, and as you can see, they both had these stellar careers right at the forefront of Nazi aviation. And Hannah, in particular, was delighted um, she had blonde hair, curls, and blue eyes, and she was sort of a perfect Aryan maiden type thing. Um, and she was a, a quickly an enthusiastic supporter of Hitler as well, very happy to lend her, her face, her name, as well as her skills to the regime. This is a Gabbati collectible cigarette card. It comes from the Nazi Modern Beauty series. I just say I've never seen those words put together before, but uh, there you have it. Um, and uh, by 1938, she undertook another PR role for them as well. I don't know if anyone knows what kind of aircraft this is. Um, it's actually a helicopter, an autogyro, an early kind of helicopter. Uh, Hannah was the first woman in the world to fly a helicopter. And in 1938, she became the first person to fly one inside a building. Uh, and this is a still of that flight. It's in the Great Deutschland Halle, which was built for the Olympics. But it's now being used for the 1938 um, Berlin Motor Show. And her brief was to fly as close as possible to the, the banks of seating where all the international guests and press were, close enough to blow the gentlemen's hats off. It's just absolutely terrifying. Um, and then she would come out and do a Nazi salute in the middle of the arena. Um, and uh, as you can imagine, when war came the next year, she was one of the first to volunteer. Um, she started off, she tested an amazing thing called the Gigant, which was like a giant glider. It was, she's about five foot three, four, and the wheels of this thing were as high as her head. Um, it could take 200 fully armed men or even a tank. It was extraordinary. And she would go into the cockpit in the test program to test it, but then she had to tie wooden blocks to the bottom of her shoes in order to reach the pedals. Just extraordinary work. Then she tested the wing blades that I mentioned earlier, and eventually she ended up testing uh, the gliding landings with this. This is the ME163, the rocket powered Messerschmitt Comet. And a uh, horrible machine, really. It's powered by the combustion of very unstable fuels. Um, so quite often in the test program, when they landed, some of those fuels would mix and the whole thing would explode. Um, lots of fatalities in the test program. The other way um, the pilots died, unfortunately, was they were very corrosive fuels. And originally, the two fuel tanks were behind the pilot's seat. And there's a famous case of a, a test coming in, a perfect test, but the pilot didn't get out of the cockpit having landed. And when the ground crew got to him, they realised that the fuels had corroded through the tanks, gone through the seat, and then corroded through his spine. And he was described as being like jelly in, in the pilot's chair. So nonetheless, Hannah was desperate to have a go at flying this thing, because it was the great PR piece of the time. Um, and she later described it for the TV series World at War in the 1970s. 
And uh, I was lucky enough to find the man who interviewed her for that, who uh, used to be at the BBC. And he described her saying, you know, it was like riding on a cannonball. And every time she swung her arm into the air, she was so enthusiastic that she swept her bum off the leather sofa. She was sitting on, apparently, and they had to keep retaking it. Eventually, they got a perfect shot. And then he realised that one of the uh, badges she was wearing had the Nazi logo, the swastika, in it. Uh, and the BBC couldn't have that, so they had to cut it out anyhow. But you can still watch it on YouTube. It's been put up. Um, but in fact, I don't believe she actually ever flew it like a cannonball when it was under power. But she was testing the gliding landings because, of course, the fuel burnt out very quickly. It went very fast, and then they had to glide back down. And She said they glided very badly, like a grand piano, she said. Um, and on her fifth test, uh, the, way, the way they're taken up is they're under the wing of a mother plane. So they're kind of hauled up and then they'd be let go to, to glide back down. And they're on a detachable dolly with wheels to roll along on the ground as they take off. But on her fifth test, this dolly didn't fall off as it was meant to, and it just hung there, you know, unbalancing the plane. And as she came down, I mean, she knew there was something wrong, she'd worked it out, so she tried to shake it off, it didn't come off. So she had to come down for a controlled crash landing, and it went quite badly. Uh, the plane spun around, smashed as it came down, and she was knocked unconscious. And when she came round, she, she realised she wasn't upside down because she wasn't hanging in her harness. And she did what you're meant to do, so she checked her legs and her arms, and she had no injuries. It was amazing. Until, she later said, until my hand reached the place where my nose had been, where there was now nothing but an open cleft bubbling with blood. And uh, she had, one pilot told me she had, in effect, wiped her nose off her face. Um, she'd also broken her skull, fractured it in four different places, and various other injuries. Um, what she did, though, was she reached for her pencil and her pad, and she noted down what she thought had gone wrong, in case she died and couldn't pass the information on. And then she got a white handkerchief out of her pocket and covered her face so she wouldn't distress her rescuers before falling unconscious again. I mean, she was a very courageous woman as well. And she was taken off to hospital, and suddenly, I mean, nobody thought she was going to survive, and Hitler realised that his great celebrity that was so beloved now by the German people might die, having had no recognition from the regime, and it was a potential nightmare for him. So it was this extraordinary moment in the war, the first time he awarded a woman an Iron Cross in the Second World War. And she did survive, she had early plastic surgery, and she was back in the cockpit in a couple of weeks, well, a couple of months. Now, if anything, Melissa's work was even more important. Um, as I said, she was interested in engineering and she uh, graduated, became an aeronautical engineer, which is amazing anyhow. Uh, she actually developed the dive sites and the dive brakes for the Stuka dive bombers. These are the ones I was talking about doing the nose test dives. They're the machines that are synonymous with the Blitzkrieg. More valuable work for the regime than Hannah's, in fact. Um, and to do one of these flights was considered you know, really courageous. Um, and she would insist on doing her own tests, even though she was an engineer. Nobody expected her to do that. So here she is, uh, the first one. This is uh, Gatto, just outside, or on the edge of Berlin, under an Effie, uh, F Wolf 87, and then an 88 here, telling all the men, the ground crew, what to do. And she... Uh, would tinker with it. So she would go up once, do a test flight, and then she would change things a bit, and she'd go up again. That would be considered heroic in a man. Melita would do 15 tests in a single day. She did over 2,000 during the course of the war, more than any other, I mean, miles more than anyone else. And the Nazis couldn't understand it. How could this woman do more than men? It was just impossible to them. And of course, they're Nazis, so they look for biological explanations for things. So they wondered, perhaps women's blood is differently constituted to male blood, and it, it must be to do with that. And of course, that wasn't the reason. There was a simple reason why 
um, Melissa was doing this, though. She knew that she had to work at the edge of what was humanly possible. She had to make herself uniquely valuable to the Nazi regime. Because around 1935, when the Nuremberg Laws came in, um, enshrining Nazi racial prejudice into law, she discovered that her father had been born Jewish. She'd been brought up as a Protestant, and it had never been part of her life. But they considered her, they branded her Mischling, horrible phrase of theirs, which means, you know, mixed-blooded. Um, and I think at this point, Melissa didn't know the end result of Nazi policy. Um, but whereas Hannah saw bunting and parades and brass bands, Melissa saw violence on the streets and social democrats as well as communists being taken away and disappeared. Um, she could see the direction of travel, if you like. So, um, then eventually, uh, because she was so skilled, the Nazis offered her what they called equal to Aryan status, all horrendous terminology, and she actually refused it unless she said all of her family was given the same status. I think only 300 people out of about 30,000 that applied were given this status, and eventually she negotiated it for her family. So to an extent, she was working under duress to try and save as many people in her family as she could. It's my favourite pair of photographs. This is the official photographs of them receiving their Iron Cross. Um, they're taken by Heinrich Hoffmann Studios, that's Hitler's personal photographer. Just so clearly shows the difference between them. Hanno is absolutely delighted, staring at the camera, grinning away. Um, you can see the Iron Cross very clearly on her. That other badge is uh, it's the Pilots and Observers badge, but because she's a woman, it's like a female version of it. I think she's the only one that got it with diamonds. Um, by contrast, here's Melita. Not, you know, she's looking away from the camera. There's very few official Iron Cross photographs with someone doing that. She is not a hint of a smile on her face. And the only sign of the Iron Cross is her husband, Alexander, had taken the ribbon from it, fashioned it into a little bow, had it enameled, and she's wearing it on her lapel there, you can just see. So this takes us to around the middle of the war, but it's really the choices they took, their decisions in the second half of the war that makes their story so extraordinary. We'll touch on that in a minute. I thought I'd talk a little bit about my research behind the book so you get something that's not, not in the book. I love, I love my research, I love my job, very nosy, inquisitive is a better word, um, person. So, um, and I love getting stuck in and trying things. So I did go up in a glider. I can only say, if you get a glider, it's beautiful, it's really fun, it's lovely, but don't go with a notebook and start making notes and looking up and down, because we had to come down quite quickly. But anyhow, um, I thought originally I was going to write a book about some of the women in the ATA, the British Ferry Pilots, because I knew uh, a lady called Mary Ellis, um, who some of you might have seen. Sadly, she died this summer. Um, she was 101 then, and she was, she was known as Spitfire Mary. She took over 400 Spitfires between field and factory. She was brilliant. Um, but when I met her, as you can see the photographs, I just said, Mary, can I write your biography? I'd love to do it. And she said, I'd love you to, Claire, but I've just finished my memoirs. I said, oh, damn you. So um, I thought I'd look at some of the lesser-known women in the war. And this is one of my heroines. Her name is Constance Babington-Smith. She worked in aerial reconnaissance. So she wasn't taking the photograph. She is looking through. You can just see uh, next to the model of the comet there, there's a little brass thing. It's got two lenses in. It's called a stereoscope. The, so the planes would go out. They take two photographs from slightly different angles at the same time. And when you put those photographs together and look through a stereoscope, they rise up at you in 3D. If you get to have a go, um, it's great fun. And uh, they employed a lot of women in this role. Touchell's daughter, uh, Sarah Oliver, was another one of them. She's very popular because she had access to real coffee. 
Um, and the reason they employ so many women is because it released men to go to the front, but also uh, one of the reasons I found in the file says women have a very good eye for detail, hence they're so good at darning socks, so we should employ them in the role. That was one of the actual reasons they listed. Extraordinary. Anyhow, what struck me here was that we had probably two women that have been pretty much unsung. We have Constance on one side of the war, and on the other side, and she's famous because she's accredited with identifying the first V1 or, and V2, in fact, on uh, the aerial photographs of Penamunda. You can just see a black arrow in that second picture pointing to a little cross. That's one of them. And um, one of the other things, the little dots on those uh, photographs would be some of the pilots walking to work. And I know that Hannah Reich was in Penamunda testing the Messerschmitt comet. So, Probably we have two women opposite sides of the war, opposite sides of a lens, right at the heart of things that hadn't really been talked about. But then, uh, looking into these photographs of Penamunde, I got very interested in Penamunde, and I went to interview this gentleman here. His name is Jack Pragnell. It's absolutely fantastic. He and his twin brother Tom, you see in the first photograph, uh, they signed up, they served with Bomber Command. I'm sad to say that Tom was killed in action in 1943, but Jack survived the war. And uh, he was on Operation Hydra, which was the Allied bombing of Penamunda. We had, I think there was over 800 planes in the air at one time, a lot of American planes as well. And I was fascinated in this operation because I know Hannah was there during the testing because in her memoirs she said, the Allies have made such a thing about this, but it was nothing, and I slept through it. That's all the space she gave it. I was thinking, really? So I asked Jack if that was possible. And he said, there is no way. He said, you know, the ground... Of when the bombs went down, the earth was coming up and hitting the belly of his plane. He said that he looked out and he could see the ground moving as if it was an earthquake. And he said that she couldn't have slept through it unless she'd had 20 double brandies and was wearing headphones. So I thought that was quite interesting, although I did find out she was drinking brandy with Werner von Braun the night before, so, you know, maybe, but unlikely. And then I was lucky enough to meet Jack again when I'd finished the, my book. And so it was an evening, a bit like this. I gave him a copy of it, and went, there was a talk. And at the end, I went to say goodbye. And he said, oh, I just want to thank you for your book, Claire. It's really excellent. I said, well, thank you, Joe. Have you read it? You know, you can't have read it yet. He said, no, no, I'm not going to read it. But um, I looked myself up in the index, and that bit's very good. <laughs> it was so lovely. But um, sadly, he died um, in 2007, last year. And... Um, I suppose that's one of the, it's a real honour, you know, when you write these books, you can capture some of these stories that be forgotten. I'm, I'm glad that his story is part of this book. Anyhow, someone else I interviewed was this fantastic man, Eric Winkle Brown. Some people obviously know him. Uh, he was Britain's leading test pilot. It's actually a Royal Naval pilot. He's flown more different types of plane than anyone else in history, 487 different types of plane. And amazingly, he knew Hannah before the war, right at the end of the war, and for the rest of their lives afterwards. He first met her at the 1936 Olympics because uh, Eric told me that his father had been flying in the, in the First World War. And Ernst Udet held out the hand of friendship to their uh, previous opposite numbers and invited them to the Olympics. And Eric's dad brought his teenage son along. And he said, when he first got there, uh, Udek came up to him and said, have you ever been in a plane, lad? And Eric said, no. And his first ever flight was when Udek said, right, hop in. And this German general, Nazi general, took him up for a flight. And when they were up in the air, Udek looked around and he said, are you strapped in? And he was quickly sort of checking. And they started doing loop the loops. Eric was terrified, but he loved it. Uh, so great irony that one of our greatest test pilots was first given his flavour for flying by a Nazi general. Then they came down, he met Hannah, he saw Hannah fly, he thought she was an amazing pilot. And two years later, Uda invited him back to watch her fly the helicopter. 
After that, Udet invited them back to his after-show party at his flat. And he liked to get all of his guests quite drunk, apparently, so they're joining in quite happily. And then, at a certain point, Udet took them into another room and gave his guests a pistol and showed them a target painted on the wall. But it wasn't that easy. They had to stand with their back to the target and look into a mirror on the wall opposite and shoot at this target over their shoulders. I've often wondered what the neighbours thought about this. I suppose they didn't say anything if you were, you know, next door to a Nazi general. Anyhow, uh, um, Eric and Hannah were both too short. I don't know if it's like jockeys. They have to be light or something. They're both very short. They couldn't see in the mirror. So Udet had to get his handheld shaving mirror and they had to use that to look. So they kind of bonded a bit over that. But Eric said, although he... He always really admired her skill in the air. He loathed her politics. He said she was a fanatical Nazi. And he was at pains to make sure that I, I took that on board, which I did. And then at the end of the war, he actually he was sent out to try and get all the, you know, the wind tunnels and the great equipment for the Brits before the Soviets took them all, uh, and the Americans took some. And uh, he, he identified Hannah Reich, and he handed her over to the Americans uh, in exchange for the opportunity to interview her or interrogate her at that point, and he got this amazing interrogation with her. And then they, they, they stayed in touch. They wrote letters, and one of her last letters actually is written to Eric, um, and they used to meet at international flying meets and so on. And the last time I met Eric, I remember very vividly, we met about four or five times, and he used to ring out in between, he was so brilliant, he said, I've got, I thought of something else for you, darling. I was like, oh, thank you, but in like really strong Scottish accent. And then um, the last time I met him, he shook hands, I think he maybe knew, he died in 2016, anyhow, he shook hands, and I shook his hand, and then he said, you should be careful doing that. I was like, oh, <laughs> why? And he said, you know, you're just two handshakes away from Hitler, because he shook Hannah's hand, and Hannah shook Hitler's hand. <laughs> That was quite sobering, actually. Anyhow, I also interviewed pilots on the other side of the war, including this man. This is Dietrich Pütter, and he was a reconnaissance pilot with the Luftwaffe. Um, he met Hannah in about 1942. He, uh, he was working in Ukraine, and he came across a large amount of stolen, clearly, caviar, and he was sent back to hand it over to Goering in uh, Berlin. And he was put up in the Adlon Hotel, lovely posh hotel. And the next morning, he saw Hannah at breakfast, so he decided to join her table. And apparently, he was a great big man, and she's tiny, and they're soon laughing away and getting on like a house on fire. And she asked what he's doing. And so he said, and she was horrified, not because it was stolen caviar, but because one of the buttons on his uniform was slightly hanging off, and she just thought that would be really offensive. So she reached into her bag, and it seems she always carried a needle and thread with her, and she sewed it on there and then at his breakfast table. And he thought this was marvellous, because not only was she, you know, beautiful, according to him, and a great pilot, but also very feminine. So that was all right, you know. So I was pleased about that. And then he went back to... Um, I'm going to do one that's not on the cards. <laughs> he went back to... Um, uh, the Ukraine, to his base, uh, which is called Berdichev. And he told me this other story that a few weeks later, he saw a big silver condor plane coming into land, a very famous plane. It was Hitler's personal plane. And so uh, he suddenly realised, he told me that he was the most uh, senior man on the base at that point. So he shouted out and they did a quick tidy up and smartened themselves up. He went out to greet his Führer. Hitler came in. He sat on the edge of Dietrich's desk, swinging his legs and asking him all about cameras because he's a reconnaissance pilot and he knows all about the camera equipment. And 20 minutes later, another big plane came in to land and it was Mussolini who was coming for a meeting with Hitler. And so he went out to greet Mussolini. And when Mussolini got off his plane, apparently he was sort of <laughs> stepping between leg to leg. And Dietrich realised that whereas Hitler's plane was the best top of the range and it had a toilet on, Mussolini's didn't. So he said, oh, would you like to go to the washroom? Mussolini said yes. 
And Dietrich said that he had every kind of camera that they had in those days, and he couldn't resist it because he had one on a stick. I imagine it like a selfie stick, probably wrongly, but anyhow. So while Mussolini's in The Gentleman's, he puts it around the corner, he takes a few shots. Really good shots, apparently he got everything. <laughs> anyhow, then a couple of days later, they got them developed, and they were laughing at them, him and the lads at the base, this was hilarious. And they had a couple of visitors from the SS, and they said, we want the photographs. So he said, I don't know what you're talking about, I don't know what photographs you mean. They said, we want the photographs or we'll kill your wives. So they said, oh, these photographs, and handed them over. He said, I'm sorry, Claire, I can't show you. I was, really, don't need to see them anyhow, but thank you. Um, but it kind of, you know, it gives you this idea that they were all having a bit of laugh. And on the other side, they were actually young men, real people who had a laugh and, you know. And these are the stories that bring it to life for us. I try to include them. There's another one I really love about, I won't do too many, but um, Hannah used to wear, she was so annoyed she wasn't allowed in Luftwaffe uniform that she made, sort of sewed her own dark blue uniform outfit with a skirt. But then she ended up always wearing a white fluffy Angora jumper on it, which kind of ruined it. So I asked um, another man I interviewed from the Luftwaffe why this was. And he said she was the only woman on the base. So they're constantly, they're putting their arm around her and she must have got sick of the wandering hands because they're in Luftwaffe uniform and the fluff from her jumper would come off and ruin their uniforms. And then they got told off so they couldn't, you know, play around too much. This stuff really brings history to life, which is great. But it's not just individual stories, is it? It's always in a context. So a bit of a gear change here. I found out what was happening in Berdachev in Ukraine in the months that Dietrich was there, and he himself told me he was the most senior man on the base. He's there because he's photographing the terrain as the Eastern Front moves forward, so they want to know what they're up against. And as the Front moves forward, they send in these very specialist units, crack troops, to do the ethnic cleansing. And in, there was a large Jewish Ukrainian population, and there isn't anymore. They rounded up the men. They took 400 away who were put into forced labor camps who later died. Uh, then they rounded up the rest of the population and they machine gunned them. And then they ran out of bullets and the women and children were the last. The last ones of those they put into a lake and they drowned them. Now this man did not give the orders. He wasn't responsible for that to an extent. But when I interviewed him, he never mentioned it. He never, you know, he told me how great Hitler was and how wonderfully he was so quick to pick up the technicalities of cameras. You know, we have to remember this is in a context and all individuals, you know, are part of that bigger, that we all construct this and make it happen. So, moving on from that, as well as interviews, I love, I love paperwork. Uh, Hannah's papers are mostly in the uh, main German archive in Munich, the Deutsche Museum. Um, but they've, I think, been vetted by her family. Nothing that surprising in there. But I've written a couple of books on the Second World War now, and I know um, a couple of people who collect memorabilia from all sides of the war, and so I asked them if they had anything, and one of them had a collection of 14 handwritten letters by Hannah that have never been seen before, including this one here. And she's writing to her English friend Barry in this set of letters. Uh, Barry is complaining about hearing foreign languages on the streets of London. And she writes back very... Um, forcefully to him. It really exposes her character. She's very candid because she never thought these would be seen by anyone else. You probably can't read it, so I'll just read a tiny bit from it. She says, Oh well, the Jew is with my country. The most horrible lies that hi history has ever produced with Holocaust is spreading around the world with the purpose to hate Germany. The Jews have the most rare brain to invent hatreds, hatreds instead of peace. And a Jewish movie industry in the USA, which was going to break down, invented this to save themselves, and they are earning millions. 1979. It's the last interview I came across with her was also 1979. That's the year she died. I think it was a Canadian uh, journalist. Anyhow, he said to her, Hannah, 
I understand that at the time you didn't know what was happening. You didn't know about the concentration and extermination camps. Um, you were just a patriot. But in the 30 years since, you know, you've become you know, a great example for young people and so on, but you've never gone on record to distance yourself from the policies of the regime. And I'd like to give you that opportunity. Do you have regrets? Do you feel any guilt? And this is what she said. I believe in national socialism. I still wear the Iron Cross Hitler gave me, which we know from the BBC interview with the swastika cross and so on. She said, do I feel guilty about the war? Yes, I feel guilty. I feel guilty that we lost. 1979. Now, before I started on this, I read a couple of biographies of Hannah, you know, one fairly old and one more recent. They generally present her as a brilliant pilot, yes, uh, beautiful, uh, maybe, I don't know, um, very courageous, absolutely. But they say she was politically naive and innocent. She could have been working for us, it's just history. It's not true. She absolutely shared the Nazi worldview and she did a lot to support it and bring it on. So we need to remember people can be complex. Now, it was amazing to discover, Hannah's quite well known, but there was still this sort of secret side to her that wasn't known. But Melita's almost not known at all, so it was fabulous to uh, find out more about her. And I was very lucky to be able to go out and interview some of her family, who very kindly opened up their archives to me, um, having given me a rather terrifying interview, anyhow, um, with nice German cake. Um, and this is some family photographs. And they also, um, I met uh, one of her nieces was there. She gave me this, which is Pilot's chocolate. It's actually reproduction because the original would have had a swastika in the middle. But the pilots were given this chocolate. It's called Shoca-Cola. So it's Shoffer chocolate, ca for caffeine, and cola for Coca-Cola. It was packed full of stuff to keep them awake, you know. And she apparently would, uh, one of her bases she flew from was very close to her niece's home. So when possible, she would go over there for a bit of R&R. &R. And she would always save her chocolate for her niece and nephew. Her niece, Heidi Marie, got the lion's share because she was the older one. Her brother got a few sort of sections of it. And she said she didn't sleep for two days. She was bouncing off the walls. Probably because it's stuffed full of all this, but maybe they didn't know. It was also stuffed full of pervitin, which is a stimulant drug to keep the pilots awake. So she was liberally dosing her six-year-old niece up with pervitin. <laughs> Anyhow, she said it was lovely chocolate, so there you go. So... Uh, I also was lucky enough to meet her in-laws. As I said, she married to this gentleman, Alexander. I love this photograph of them having breakfast. I guess it's breakfast because he's got a wonderful egg cut there with his family crest on, um, which I'd also quite like to see. Um, they didn't have any children, so I couldn't interview them. Um, but this is uh, Bertolt, their eldest nephew, and he was fantastic. I managed to get in touch with him. We spoke on the phone. He said, look, I'm not talking about my father anymore. I'm, I've told those stories. I'm not. That's it. I said, actually, I, I don't want to talk about your dad. I'd like to talk about your aunt, Melita. He said, oh, well, why don't you come for breakfast? I said, I'd love to, but I'm in North Essex. And he said, but it's up to you. So I went to Stansted and flew over. And the next day I had breakfast with this man. He was great, actually. He, had all this, he hadn't told the story so often, so they were really fresh. And um, I spent most of the day together. And at the end, he clicked his heels in a quite a Prussian sort of way and shook my hand. And then he said, you know, you should be careful shaking hands. And I was like, oh, my gosh. He said, um, you're only two handshakes away from Hitler. Um, but now you have to remember that not everyone who shook Hitler's hand did it enthusiastically because Bertelt is the eldest son of this man on the left of the photograph. This is Klaus von Stauffenberg, um, who's most famous for the bomb plot on the 20th of July 1944, the Valkyrie bomb plot. He's played by Tom Cruise in the film Valkyrie. Um, and he's about to shake Hitler's hand not long before he's uh, going to try and blow him up with a bomb in his suitcase. So... One of the most extraordinary things I found in my research was, was this document. 
it's Melissa's handwritten diary from 1944. And the page I'm showing you here is the 20th of July, 1944. This episode in the Second World War, the bomb plot, is one of the most written about and filmed episodes of the conflict. And I have never seen mention of the women that were involved in it. Nobody's really done any work on it. And there were several. I mean, Klaus's wife knew about it. She would burn papers. She didn't know the details, though, but she was burning the papers. Uh, there was a secretary who'd already typed out Hitler is dead, the broadcast for the radio. Um, she had it locked in her drawer. I mean, terrifying stuff. And Melitta was right in the heart of the bomb plot. Initially, she started providing a safe space for the conspirators to talk, which was, as a pilot, she was allowed to have a sailing boat on the Ronsi, the lake in Berlin. And in her diary, you see their names coming up. She's taking them all sailing. It's not for the fun of it. It's because you can't be overheard on a yacht in the middle of a lake. So that's where they were initially coming up with our ideas. And then her diary shows that increasingly in the months, the weeks, and the days before the 20th of July, she is staying with Klaus at his Tristanstrasse flat, which is really conspiracy HQ. It turned out that she had offered to fly the plane, to fly Klaus to the Wolf Lair to do the bomb explosion, but couldn't get the right plane on the day, so didn't. But she was right at the heart of things. Um, so she'd just been nominated for the Iron Cross uh, first class, having already received the second, and it had been approved. Uh, but then, of course, instead of receiving it, she's arrested with about 2,000 other people and imprisoned. And I expected her to die in prison, of course. That's where she learned most of her relatives were being slowly hanged or shot. Um, but she didn't. She negotiated her way out. And what she did afterwards is absolutely extraordinary. But we don't have time to get to that. It is all in the book. Um, so Melita had felt it was time to bring an earlier end to the war by July 44, and so did Hannah. Um, she took a different approach. Just very quickly, she um, suggested to Hitler the idea of having a manned V1. This is the buzz bomb, or doodlebug. Um, so you can just see in that one, where the man is talking, there's a little cockpit there with a glass front. So that was... It was called Operation Self-Sacrifice, and initially Hitler didn't like the idea, he thought it was defeatist, um, and we have this wonderful report by his Luftwaffe adjutant, who was in the room at the time, and apparently Melita, uh, Hannah was just browbeating Hitler, saying, we've got to do it, and in the end he said, okay, you have my permission to go off and do a trial of it, which is where this comes from, but... Uh, she had to seek permission to go any further. He said, just stop harassing me about it. And that's how she got permission. There's not many people that harassed Hitler into getting what they wanted, um, but Hannah did. So she was the first name of the volunteer suicide pilots with this, um, but it never went into action because D-Day happened first. None of that is what makes her famous, of course. This is what makes her famous, her last flight into Berlin, but sorry, no time for that. Um, I'm just going to finish up quickly with what happened after the war. Uh, just to touch lightly on it, uh, Hannah is the fourth along in the white coat there, the shorter lady. And here she is on the lawn of the White House. And yes, that is JFK in the middle there. She managed to completely uh, bring her profile round again. And many people uh, really admired her for her courage uh, and her skill. And in, I think, her memoir, she told the story that she wanted told. And she was soon legendary. Meanwhile, Hannah, uh, Melitta, simply faded from the record altogether, partly because of Hannah. In the late 1970s, Hannah's closest sister, Clara, thought, you know, everyone knows Hannah, but nobody knows there were two pilots in this role, two female test pilots. So she decided to write a biography of her sister. And she put adverts in the German newspapers saying if anyone had memories to get in touch. And Hannah saw them, and she wrote the most vitriolic set of letters to Clara. And we know because Clara kept them and her daughter let me see them. Um, it's full of stuff like, uh, Melissa's work was in no way hazardous or important. So this is the, you know, vertical dive bombing test that was so important for the Blitzkrieg, you know, hugely valuable work. 
uh, for the Nazis. Uh, she, uh, Hannah claimed that Melitta's Iron Cross was invalid because she's Jewish and therefore she couldn't have got one. But actually, we've got photographs of Goebbels giving it to her. You know, it's all the paperwork. Um, and she attributed Melitta's ambition to what she called despair caused by her racial burden. Those words, racial burden, pop up throughout her letters. Just horrible stuff. Uh, and in the end, after threats that, you know, embarrassing discoveries would come out if Clara persisted, Clara gave up the idea and that book wasn't written. I was absolutely delighted to tell their story <laughs> together. So just to finish up, here we have our two women whose different choices took them right to the heart of the Third Reich, but from very different perspectives. I suppose, that, you know, they were both complicit, they're both culpable to some degree. Um, this isn't a sort of yin-yang thing. They were at opposite sides, but they weren't at the extremes, either of them, really. Um, of course, they made their choices under the perverting conditions of dictatorship and war. But um, someone said to me, oh, you know, it's good that you've written a book about good Nazis. I was like, oh, no, no, I have not done that. I don't put those words together. And someone else said, you know, when Theresa May was getting all that hassle, they said, oh, it's good, it's a book about strong and nasty and difficult women. I try really hard, and it's not that... What I've tried to do is write a book about two real women who lived in these very difficult times, whose stories tell us more than just about them. They talk about the opportunities that were open to some, but not to all, um, and about the difficulty it takes, the courage it takes to act on truth and face realities. But I hope if it does something that is fairly simple, it is this. I hope it highlights the absolute hypocrisy of a regime that decided there was only one place for women, Kirschakuka Kinder, and no place at all for Jews, and yet gave its highest honours to two women in the very male-dominated world of aviation inside Nazi Germany, one of whom they themselves considered to be Jewish. Thank you very much for listening to me. So, I, I'm, we're going to have a little chat now uh, uh, with further questions for, for Claire. Well, how about we start with, how, how did you go about trying to write this dual biography? It's essentially two biographies intertwined. It's two biographies intertwined, yes. Um, it's my third book, and I wanted to do something that was very interesting structurally as well. Mm -hmm. um, and, and actually, they kind of took over quite early on. In, in my mind, when I was writing it, I had this idea of them buzzing around my brain in their planes, which was quite irritating at first. But then they started to make a... It was a bit like DNA. They started spiralling around each other as opposites. And I realised that their stories are very much like mirror images of one another. So, I mean, I start off... I think the first chapter is Melissa and the second chapter is Hannah. And after that, they're intertwined the whole way through. Because, I mean, there are a few meetings, not as many as I'd liked, um, mainly because they loathed one another. Although... They both flew, they were the only women flying from often the same airfields, and the only female members of the Berlin Aero Club. Um, there are all these reports they wouldn't even take a cup of tea with each other. But there is one extraordinary meeting where they do come together and um, Hannah later accuses Melitta of making a sexual pass at her. So I'm amazed the Daily Mail didn't get hold of this and do a big thing. But anyhow, um, so that is quite exciting. Um, but it really, it, they, it's very parallel, opposites, mirror images, and, and they made such perfect foils for one another. I couldn't believe it. Only two female test pilots, one dark, one fair, one a complete Aryan support, you know, loves, tries to save Hitler's life at the end of the war, and the other one, Jewish, and tries to kill him. It just couldn't be more perfect, so, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's clear from um, what you've said that you don't particularly like Hannah as a person. Was no. it really hard to write a biography about someone you dislike? 
Um, it, it brings certainly brings new challenges. I hope it makes me a better biographer, actually. I think it's really important that we don't just write about the people we think are fantastic. And although, I mean, my last subject in The Spy Who Love, it's about Britain's first female special agent of the war, this brilliant Polish-born countess who ended a British citizen called Christina Scarbeck or Christine Granville. And I just thought she was fantastic. Um, basically made love to the cream of the British and Polish special services while fighting off the Nazi advance across Europe. She was amazing. My mother hated her because we have slightly different values and I found that really interesting mm. um, and you can get too sort of obsessed and passionate about it and so it was quite good to have a check um, but I something I really enjoyed in the book was that early on Hannah is very bubbly I don't think I don't think you can really be a feminist and a racist at the same time actually but she's kind of pro women's rights she's kind of quite forceful about this and there's a lot to quite like in some of those early attitudes if you could have them in isolation which you can't and whereas Melita is, she's more aristocratic, she's shyer, she's, well, seemingly shyer, she's quieter for good reason, uh, she's trying to keep a low profile, but she's quite snobby, she's quite aristocratic, there's less, she's, it's easier to warm to Hannah, and I liked thinking, where would you be on the spectrum, how would you, if you met these people, what would they be like, and to make me, certainly challenge me, and hopefully readers to think about, when you come across people, that we're more complex, and you end up disliking the one that seems more amiable at the start, and that is a really nice thing to a nice arc to put in a book. So. so, you said that these are the two female test pilots. Were there any, any other female pilots in Nazi Germany? There were. Before the, world, before the war, there were quite a few. Okay. Uh, Ellie Beinhorn was probably the most famous, whose husband was a very famous racing car champion who actually died, and she requested the Nazis didn't come to the funeral, and then it became this big Nazi PR thing. Um, and she was very good friends with both these women, so I talked to her son, and that was fascinating. But these were the only two that served as test pilots, and originally Nazi Germany wouldn't have any ferry pilots like the women that we had in our ATA. Mm -hmm. The ATA was mainly male, actually, but we had a number of these fantastic female pilots as well. But the Germans didn't use those because they thought it was shameful. But towards the end of the war, they really needed to, so they brought in a couple. Um, one of them uh, only uh, flew for a short while as a ferry pilot, but did do some of that work was called Beata Earth and I think she gets a little footnote we were talking about the footnotes yeah. earlier she gets a little footnote in the book because she's rather fantastic and I did her story is so great I was almost going to put it in but it's a very different role just moving planes between factory and airfield than it is to you know helping design and doing the test work completely different but what makes her story fun is is really her post-war story she came, she became Germany's first female multi-millionaire on her own right because she set up the world's first chain of sex shops. Um, <laughs> but I just thought that was a distraction, really different story. So, um, just a footnote. Yeah. Well, speaking of footnotes, what was your favourite one? Oh, well, it, I, that's the one I told when I went off piste on my story just now about um, the photographing Mussolini. My, um, originally it was in the book, and my editor was like, I don't think so, Claire, so it's not pertinent. And, you know, but I was just like, I can't waste this. So if you look carefully, it is there as a little footnote, but you've got a bit more of a fuller story of it now. That's great. Um, so, and as you were writing and putting this together, how long did this take you? You've obviously been interviewing people over a number of years. Yes, I get very obsessive about it. Um, I'm very slow. I have some excellent friends who write many more books than I do, but I am juggling it with family and, you know, I review and I write for the Telegraph and various other things. Um, 
it took me four years. I'm trying to make excuses for myself before I say that, but yeah, it took me four years. And I keep researching throughout the process, really, until the final copy gets sent off. And I've never found anything that changed my perspective right at the end, but I've found, you know, colour to add throughout. There's a wonderful story I got near the end about Hannah, who I've always got this incredibly brave. And there was a man, I didn't get to interview him, but somebody else had interviewed him and recorded it. He'd since died, but he gave me the recording. And he was on a base with Hannah. And one day, she started screaming and so they all rushed to see what was going on they armed themselves and came to defend her and there was a mouse and she was standing on a chair with a little mouse beneath her um, so it's always good to you know keep gathering as much as you can <laughs> so when you when you're building the, the picture of these people then and you're obviously putting them in historical context you yes. do a fair bit of research about that um, how, how did you like, build a sense of like the moral worldview that each of them had and how was that formed their own personal moral worldview. Well, yeah. uh, obviously, as well as looking at their individual lives, I'm looking at the context, so I read mm -hmm. a lot of histories and do... I mean, I love archives. I do like going back to the sources, but it's very valuable to read Anthony Beaver and everyone else as well to build up that picture. Roger, who was here the other day, um, who kindly proofread the book for me, actually, bless him. And, um, and the other thing is looking at their individual histories. So not just interviewing the families, but looking at their family trees and the traces and the letters. I, I love letters. I always think letters are like, um, they're like the fossils of history. You know, they, they capture that thing that's, they're really bad for facts. You get two people looking at the same event and you get completely different stories about it. But they're brilliant for emotion. That thing that disappears, it's intangible, but it's mm -hmm. kept in letters. So a lot of that tells them about, you know, the family pride Melita had, this sense of their aristocracy. She had all these <coughs> Junker values that came. And when she was patriotic, her worldview was very much of a Germany before the Nazis, of this great intellectual country, and, and also the humiliation of Versailles. But Hannah was much younger, and her perspective was much more about, you know... Well, actually, the first time, so many... Sorry, guys. So many men, when I meet them, say, of course, it was all the women that voted for Hitler. Actually, it was the men as well. Really, it was. And, um, and they say it was the women that were mesmerised by him, though. You get, you get these stories of his wonderful eyes and things. And we have this... Um, Hatner wrote about the first time she met Hitler. She didn't um, actually meet him, but the first time she saw Hitler. And she said she was appalled because his clothes needed ironing and he was picking his nose. So he, you know, he wasn't necessarily always mesmerising. But she had this much more youthful approach. And for her, it was the dynamism of this new regime and that kind of... For her, Germany was Nazi Germany. For Melissa, Nazi Germany, the Nazi regime was a regime that was a canker on Germany. So very different perspectives. So, yeah. And... Um, and as you're looking at this, you also um, you see them living as women in this incredibly male-dominated sphere. Yeah. Like, how rare were they in terms of getting into not only aviation but um, various technical fields in Germany at this time? Like, you know, exactly really? how unusual are they? They're, they're incredibly unusual. So. I mean, as I said, there were more female pilots, but only, I think, two others worked in ferry work, and that was just at the end of the war. Um, they were the only two who were test pilots, and Melita is the only female aeronautical engineer that I discovered. And when she went, she went to the Technical University of Munich. Mm. There were a few other girls. I mean, women had only been going to university. I think it was 1919 in Munich, you know, not that long anyhow. There were a couple of other women that signed up to do engineering, but all of them did household engineering, so they were making, I don't know, Moulinex cookie makers and things like that. None of them were doing aeronautical engineering. She took an awful lot of stick about it. And when she first joined her first job, 
they, none of them take her seriously, but she earns their respect because she is so good at her work. How do you um, think she manages to still be so conservative in her worldview while simultaneously being a trailblazer? Yeah, there are these fascinating... Well, you've read the book, so there's yeah. a couple of fascinating <laughs> articles in there. So um, the Nazis constantly want Melissa to do more PR work. Hannah's doing it all the time. She's delighted to help. Melissa always finds excuses not to do it, and eventually she has to give a talk in Stockholm, Sweden. She can't get out of it. So she gives this amazing talk in which she never once uses the word Nazi or Hitler or National Socialist. It's just incredible in a PR talk in 1943, whenever it was. Um, so that's quite telling in retrospect. But then she, she focuses on what she knows will be okay with the regime. So she gives this big talk about, you know, we female pilots are not suffragettes. That's a quote from it. She is not a feminist. Hannah is more fighting for women's rights. Melissa has that kind of thatchery thing, I think, of I'm the exception to the rule, you know, that proves the rule. So she would spend her days doing this amazing... Uh, um, test flights, then she'd do all the engineering, kind of working at a drafting table in the evenings. Then she would go back, put on a pinny, and cook her husband dinner. He was a lecturer in history and earning a fraction of what she was earning, but she was delighted she would do his secretarial work. I mean, when she slept, I don't know. She was very keen to have that feminine role. So it's fascinating that it can, you know, in those times that you can have that view. And yet, obviously, she was fighting against the regime. Yeah, well, did you want to um, tell us a little bit about the ways in which she was fighting against the regime, exactly what she got up to, or do you want people to... Oh, I think, I think we'll leave a little bit in reading the book. <laughs> I mean, the main, thing, the main thing, of course, is her involvement in the, in the famous 20th of July bomb plot. But yes, there's a lot around that. And then after the plot, she goes on and has this incredible role. She manages to negotiate her way out of prison because she is so valuable. And the deal, she spends six weeks in prison. The deal is that she goes straight back to the airfield and she does her next test flight that evening, having been in prison for six weeks, you know, with terrible conditions. Um, and she does that flight, but she never applies herself to work. She has a new mission and a focus then, but... Uh, you know, that's in the book, so amazing work. <laughs> yes. I thought maybe um, we could see if anyone in the audience has any burning questions at this point. Yes. In which context did you use Robert Harris's alternate history novel, Fatherland, as a source? And I ask because I just find it intriguing. It's very unusual for a novel to be used as a source for a factual book, to be honest. Actually, I have, yeah, it's a really good question, and I love the fact that you haven't read the book, but you've read the bibliography. I just love that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, that's the sort of person I am. Um, uh, I used novels in my last book as well, um, but that's in a different context. With this one, it was, I think it might just be in one of the appendices. I love Fatherland. I think it's a brilliant, brilliant book. It's a bit, I suppose, dated now, but it is still fantastic. And he has a scene in that where his male protagonist, this is you know, an alternative reality in which the Nazis have won, and it's written inside Germany. And his protagonist comes out through an airfield, and an airport, and he looks up, and he sees the statue to Hannah Reich with her rust-pitted eyes from the weather on this big statue. And it was just showing how... Um, you know, she was so venerated, how it could have been in an alternative future. It's not used as a historical source to make a point. It's in, uh, in the appendix about her, the mythology around her. Um, but I think novels can actually be really useful because they're written in a context and a time as well. So if you look at what, if you think of novels as being direct windows onto the past, it can be misleading. If you see novels as mirrors of the time in which they're written, as well as a window onto the past, it tells you quite a lot. So sometimes novels, I think, can be quite revealing. Thank you. Thank you. I was just wondering, did the life of Amelia Earhart impact in any way on 
the two women in your biography. I think she disappeared in 1937. She was of German descent and was possibly the most famous female aviator of all time. Yeah, I think she was the most famous one of that group. Um, no, it didn't really impact. I mean, I, she, I think I do reference her in the early chapters because she's part of that international set. Um, and they were competing at various international flying events, um, both of them, particularly Melitta was out there. And I mean, there was a couple of other, and Magda von Erzdorf was one who actually committed suicide after it panned out. She'd been doing gun running for the, for the Germans before the war. Um, so yeah, there are a few other women that do come into it. Um, Beata Erst, there's a few, but not in a huge way. Yeah. Some of the women from the ATA as well. One of the interesting things was in 1938, Melissa was actually at Chickwell in Essex. Um, early on, they were opening the new air base, and it was going to be for the women, women pilots, and the Germans sent over a couple of their female pilots to show the British girls how to do it, sort of thing, and Melissa was one of them. So there's a great scene of them. Actually, it was when Chamberlain was going over to Munich to have discussions, and suddenly, while they're there, Melissa gets called to urgently go back to the German embassy in London. So she sets off at high speed, and all the reporters like, you know, are we about to hear big news? Are they going to be the one to break the story? You know, what's happened? And it turned out that her husband, who was an academic, had been uh, had a surprise invitation to go to a London university and was wondering if she was around for dinner. So, <laughs> I'm absolutely stunned. Um, I, I knew about Hannah, but I didn't realise anything about. I never heard of the other lady. But um, are you a bit surprised? Um, at that they didn't have, the Germans didn't have anything like the HEA uh, or like Russia had the Night Witches? Yes. Um, no, I'm not that surprised. Um, I mean, Rus the N Russian Night Witches, Nachthexen, they were the female pilots of the Russian use, and they used the women in combat as well. Um, extraordinary stories in there. Some of those women are still arrived, alive with loads of medals all over them. Because they had a terrible time, they were given the worst planes, they were given less ammunition, they were absolutely freezing in their cockpits. After the war, even if they'd done extremely well, they tended to be treated as, as prostitutes, basically, because they'd been, you know, serving with the men. Um, a lot of them were ostracised socially. I mean, yeah, but... Mother Russia was meant to be equal, and they sent the women out as well. Um, and, the, of course, Germany did have an ATA, but it wasn't with women, um, until right at the end of the war when I said they did use a couple of women because they really desperately needed them. Um, but Germany was, you know, they didn't want to put women in that role. That wasn't their vision of how things should be. Women were meant to be doing Kirschakuka Kinder, and it really is testament to the extraordinary skill of Hannah and Melitta that they, they were needed, or they would never have let them uh, serve in those roles. May I, I just want to ask another question. But were they aware, the Nazis, of the women in the ATA? Uh, well, yes, they must have been, because Mary Ellis told me that she, uh, one of her flights, she was uh, delivering a plane. I mean, the, the ATA, they didn't use radios and they weren't armed. So really, it was incredibly dangerous. And on one occasion, she realized there was a, a Luftwaffe pilot on her tail, and he came alongside her very close. Now, Mary told me that she never liked to wear her helmet because it ruined her hairdo. Um, <laughs> incredible. And, yeah, and she was very blonde and pretty. And this pilot came alongside, and he saw a blonde woman. And and instead of shooting at her, he saluted her and flew off. <laughs> she was like, thank God. And so, uh, yeah, they must have heard these stories back there, but I don't know whether they had, you know, how much information they had, it not very much, I doubt. Oh, yeah, one more? One more? No? Yes? Oh, we have two, actually, one in the front row, and then, yeah, then, the, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, um, when Hannah 
flew, flew into Berlin, obviously, to rescue Hitler, and he, he, he wouldn't go. Did she fly back out again? Or did she, actually, <laughs> she did. Did she? Yeah, it is this incredible story of her. She was sent in, well, uh, um, Hitler in the bunker, April 45, asked Robert Ritter von Grime to come uh, to receive last orders in the bunker. Um, he made von Grime the last head of the Luftwaffe. This is a point where there weren't any, there wasn't a bloody Luftwaffe left, you know. But anyhow, Hitler was completely insane at that point. Uh, von Grime was a very close, possibly intimate friend of Hannah's. And Hannah knew how to fly a helicopter and could fly above Berlin and had practiced in a helicopter, seeing the destruction, still recognizing the route. So he asked her to fly her in. By the time they got to the airfield, the helicopter was destroyed and uh, they had this epic journey across several different airfields with her hiding, threading herself in the fuselage of the plane to keep going with him. And eventually they flew in a little fizzler storage, a reconnaissance plane. And the Red Army had surrounded by Berlin and they, they surrounded Berlin at that point and they shot up into the sky and the bullets pierced through the nose of the plane and went through von Grimes' legs. Now the way Hannah told it, and I have to say I always take a pinch of salt when she's recounting things, um, she said that von Grime slumped from blood loss from his wounds at the controls and she leaned over his shoulders and landed the plane on the main east-west axis in Berlin. Um, and she did, the, the picture I skipped through there is an American picture of that reconnaissance plane. She got them both into the bunker, and Hitler apparently said to her, this is what she said to the Americans in, in, uh, later on, he said, at last, thank God, there is some honour left in the world, and he gave her a present to thank her for coming in, which was a cyanide tablet. Thanks, <laughs> thanks so much. Um, and it, the idea was that she could have the honour of dying with her Führer, and that's what she wanted to do. But she begged Hitler to let him fly, her out, fly him out, but he, she, he wouldn't go. Uh, and then he changed his mind and he asked her and von Grein to take out last orders, um, which they did. And amazingly, they successfully got out because all the guns are on this thing because it could be taking Hitler out. That's where a lot of the stories that Hitler got to Argentina come from. He did not, as I'm sure Robert just said, because he's constantly being asked, you know, his teeth are in Moscow. You know, he did not get out. Um, but anyhow, she did manage to get out. And she didn't just take last orders as well. She took um, Magda and Joseph Goebbels' last letters and uh, uh, Ava Brown's last letter as well. And actually, she hated Ava. She thought she was sort of sentimental and embarrassing. And she, although she's constantly, Hannah's always talking about honor and duty and truth, she couldn't resist having a look at Eva's letter to her sister. And she thought, oh, this is rubbish. It's so embarrassing. It's going to join the great annals of Nazi history. I can't let it happen. So she tore it up and threw it out. So we don't have that. But, um, but yeah, she did successfully get out. Thank you. And this last one, I'm in the front row. Hi, um, Hi. Did uh, those pictures of Mussolini ever come to light? <laughs> Great last question. Um, no, not as far as I know. I, I think they were probably destroyed quite quickly. I think um, Dietrich was lucky to still be with us, really. No. Well, um, everyone, uh, can we all join together to thank, thank, thank Claire? You very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History, brought to you by Dublin City Council. If you'd like to subscribe, you'll find all the information you need at dublinfestivalofhistory.ie and we're also on Twitter at HistFest.